Today's text is from Jeremiah 29, one and four through seven, and also Revelation 21, one through five. From Jeremiah 29. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to their surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. And next we're gonna read from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and he himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is God's word. Good morning, church. Um, I'd like to also just double down and remind everyone or invite everyone to annual vision and prayer uh, next Sunday night. Uh, this is the first time we've done an annual vision and prayer night uh, on a uh, off night for years now, like 2020 was our last one, I believe, and um, so this is pretty unique. If you are obviously, uh, like Jess said, uh, someone who's committed to this church, uh, we kind of expect you to show up because it's really important, but if you're new to the church, we want to invite you to show up to learn, to hear about the vision of our church and uh, where we've been and kind of where we feel we're going uh, in, the, in the coming years. <clears throat> so it's really, really, really important one. Uh, and it's going to be really fun as well. We'll have a cocktail hour. We'll have, uh, if you're not into that, we'll have some, uh, so a little pour-over bar as well um, for those that want coffee at 7 o'clock at night. <clears throat> there are some of you out there. And, um, and yeah, so this should be a really, really good night. Um, I will say once again, I have a lot to say. So uh, we continue our annual vision series, which will culminate at AVP. Uh, so far, we've talked about having a vision for your life. And we've also talked about having a vision for formation and fire. And today I'd like to talk to you about having a vision for a city. A vision for a city. Let's pray. Lord, I, I in some ways think that this is some of the, one of the hardest things for us uh, sort of postmodern, late modern people to grasp in the West is um, a sense of um, place. And it's something that we deeply long for and want, and at the other, on the other hand, it's something that um, we think is just beyond our grasp. It's just the next job or the next city or the next relationship. 
And I know there's a lot of anxiety in a room this size, and there's a lot of restlessness in a room this size, and I pray that we would first find our home in Christ. And then, Lord, that we would find our home uh, planted in this world in a really important way, the way that you call us to do. And may it prepare us for what's to come. Um, fill us with your spirit, and, and would you give me words in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I tried to unpack for us this very important and true axiom. It goes like this. You are becoming someone. You are becoming someone. You are with every decision, every habit, every schedule you keep, everything you track, the things that are disciplines now but will become second nature for you when you master them in the future, everything that you do, you're becoming someone. Day after day, year after year, you are becoming someone. This is why we tend to become the decisions that we make. A friend of mine sent me a book by the theologian Pastor Greg Boyd. Uh, in his book, he wrote, um, this book he, is like a series of letters he wrote to his dad, who was an atheist, uh, to help uh, his dad understand um, the Christian faith. It's a beautiful book. It's just a really excellent book. And in one of his letters to his dad, um, pastor and theologian Greg Boyd drills down on this exact point. He says this, quote, the more we choose something, the more we become that something. The more we choose something, the more we become that something. We are all in the process of solidifying our identities by the decisions we make. With each decision we make, we pick up momentum and the direction of that decision. Just observing people can, I think, prove this point. And so he proves it with this story. I knew an old lady once who was the most ugly, bitter, mean-spirited person I've ever met. As a young lady, however, I am told that she was beautiful, personable, and fun. But at the age of 19, her fiance ran off with her sister three days before her wedding date. This was understandably, she was understandably humiliated and hurt. But what is most tragic is that she proceeded to choose to be hateful and unforgiving toward her sister and ex-fiance the rest of her life. Though her sister was extremely sorry for what she had done and tried numerous times to make amends later on over the course of 50 years, this lady would never budge. And with each decision against love and forgiveness, she solidified herself in bitterness. Like all negative emotions which are entertained over a long period of time, her bitterness eventually colored her whole outlook on life. She became her hatred. She became her bitterness. The momentum of her decisions became irreversible. She no longer chose it. She couldn't now, not, she couldn't now choose otherwise. All the good God originally intended for her was consumed by the repeated course of hate she chose. What started as her decision eventually became her nature. So it is, he goes on. I believe in every area of our lives. The more we choose something, the harder it is to choose otherwise until we finally are solidified, eternalized in our decision. The momentum of our character becomes unstoppable. We create our character with our decisions and our character in turn exercises more and more influence on the decisions we make. It's in the nature of free created beings and I don't see how it could be otherwise. Now, this not only applies to evil and the evil that we choose, but it also applies to love and virtue. 
For an example, many years ago, I chose to love my wife, Ashley. When we were dating way back in the 90s, there were many ups and downs when we were dating. Uh, and we were exploring the choice of committing our lives together. And I remember there was a moment after hurting each other very badly in our relationship, I didn't want to choose to love her anymore. And after a series of things that God did in my life, I did. I chose to love her, and actually I decided to vow love to her for the rest of my life, which is why I wear a ring on my left hand. And early on and in the middle of our marriage, these choices were hard to make sometimes. These choices of loving Ashley were very hard to make and early on and kind of in the middle of our relationship so far. They were acts of my will. They were discipline, decisions I had to make. And there was a very good possibility several times in our marriage that I would not choose to love her and vice versa. But with each choice we made for love, the less choice for love we had to make. And therefore, the less the possibility of not loving was present. And so fast forward to today, and it's almost impossible for me not to love Ashley. Even though she drives me um, happy, I mean, um, <laughs> most of the time. <clears throat> no, a lot of times, sometimes, she drives me crazy. But it's almost impossible for me not to choose. I don't even choose love, I just love, it's my nature now to love her and her me. And so Greg continues. He says, love must always start free, but its goal is to become unfree. To be unable not to love is the highest form of freedom in love. Which, by the way, is the reason we say God is love. Now, this isn't a sermon on marriage, though I'd imagine some of you wish it was. You had to sign up for the premarital class for that. But maybe pay attention because this, this might a little bit be a marriage sermon as well. This sermon is actually about making decisions and how these decisions shape us and make us to become someone. The decisions that we make make us to become someone. And I want to talk this morning about a very specific decision, a decision that I imagine you don't think about too much, but a decision that will, in the end, shape your character and make you become someone. And it's this decision right here. It's the decision of stability versus instability, rootedness versus rootlessness, place versus non-place. That's what I'd like to talk about this morning. Now, you might be thinking, what in the world do you mean by stability? Here's a good definition of stability. Stability is the spiritual skill for staying put in order to get somewhere. Staying put in order to get somewhere, to become someone. Now, I know I'm speaking to a room that this, right, I, probably this very moment, I've completely lost you. Staying put? This is a sermon about staying put? Are you kidding me? That is the last thing you teach this culture is to stay put. It's all about movement, man. It's all about moving and going. And, but I want to I wanna talk to you about this. This is very, very serious. It's a, it's a I want to teach you and talk to you about a long-term commitment to a group of people in a place, what we call around here rootedness. In our commitment to Jesus and our apprenticeship to Jesus, I believe we need stable communities in which to follow Jesus in. And because following Jesus is messy and can be difficult work, we need places where we can be held in all of our questions and all of our doubts and all of our brokenness and all our ups and downs over a long period of time with a group of people. We all need to be in community, and I want to suggest a stable community 
so we can grow and be challenged. Now, in order for these good, joyous, and safe places to exist, there must be a commitment that we have, a shared commitment to rootedness. This is a virtue that St. Benedict and the Benedict Order has called for many, many years, stability. Now, here's a vow of stability from a Benedictine monastery. Now, this quote is very intense. This vow is a vow. It's intense, like marriage vows. They're, kind of, they're supposed to be intense. But I think it gets out to, at some of the, the longing that we might have. Listen to this vow. We vow to remain our, all our life with our local community. We live together, pray together, work together, relax together. We give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of an ideal situation. Ultimately, there is no escape from oneself. And the idea that things would be better someplace else is usually an illusion. And when interpersonal conflicts arise, we have great incentive to work things out and restore peace because we can't leave. This means learning the practices of love, acknowledging one's own offense, offensive behavior, and giving one up one's preferences forgiving. Now, everyone, I think, wants this, wants to be part of a community like this. I think everyone's like, wait, is that what this church is? I want to be part of a church like that. I want to be part of a community like that. But the problem is, our desire for community is deep, but it's held alongside an even greater desire for individual autonomy. We want community, as evidenced by so many people signing up for community groups, but we also want individual autonomy. We think, I want to be in a stable and rooted community where people know me and I know them, where I'm, I'm, where I'm free to share my life and growth in Christ with them and they with me, people who will be there when I get that horrific call from my doctor, when I get that news from my job that I've secretly feared, or when I finally get hit, kind of hit the end of my rope and I decide to finally reach out to a therapist, or when I just want to stay with someone at, like, hang out at someone's house at night and just eat pizza and watch a movie. I want a community where I can just share life with like that. We all want community like that, but we don't want to give up our individual autonomy to get that kind of community. Remember, you are becoming someone. With every decision you make, you are becoming someone. And when that decision is one that's fundamentally based in personal autonomy and your independence, you are becoming more and more and more that particular kind of someone. Now, Again, I know that this concept of stability and rootedness might sound very foreign to you, maybe very un-American to you, or anti-personal freedom to you, and there's a good reason for that. And the reason is, you live in San Francisco. You live in San Francisco. Most of you, most of us, are not from here. And this city, San Francisco, who is the very ethos of this city came from gold miners. This city was founded by gold miners. This is a city that was literally birthed in its modern form by the spirit of miners. Now, what is that? Well, a miner, miners don't set down roots where they live. They live in camps, literally. They don't build houses and stay there long-term. They live in camps and move on. They are there to extract minerals from the land for profit and then move along on their way to wherever else they're going to be moving. They often leave the land depleted when they do leave. So they show up, live in tents, grab, try to extract gold from the land, leave the land more depleted, and then peace out and move to, and I won't, I won't name where, but you know, we all know where. 
Most of us maybe unconsciously have thought about your time in San Francisco as a minor. You have moved here, you've set up camp for a few years hoping to strike gold in your career or in your romantic life, which is not likely, by the way. <clears throat> because it's San Francisco and every, no one's here to settle down. You'll enjoy this city and its people and what it does for your career and your life experience, but you see no long-term future here. And the truth is, a majority of our church members disappear annually to be replaced by another class of attenders. The size of our church grows a little every single year, yet the annual turnover of people who, uh, that are part of our church is somewhere around four to 600 people a year turnover in our church. There's four to 600 new people. So if you ever walked in the church, you're like, everyone looks new because everyone is new. <laughs> now, obviously, that's a problem, but also it also helps us remedy another problem, which is a space problem. Because if, if you all stayed, we would not have room for you. We kind of already had a room, but that's a whole different thing. Okay, what this does is it makes a, a very fragile and suspicious environment. It's fragile because we're like, this, this thing is fragile because there's so much transience. But it's also suspicious because when people move here and they're like, I want community, I want friends, I want this thing, everyone's like, I don't know how much emotional energy to give you because I don't know how long you'll be here. And so everybody's suspicious about everyone else. Not only that, but another reason rootedness or stability might sound uncomfortable to us in our modern ears, people that live in San Francisco, because we are increasingly living in a culture of non-places. Now, I want to talk about place versus non-place for a second. Now, one anthropologist describes place versus non-place like this. Places are concerned with history, relationships, and identity, which is why the way that they talked about Jesus was Jesus of, do you remember? Nazareth, right? There was a, that he was from a place. He had history, even identity that he had to somehow rewire in his talks. He's like, I'm from Nazareth, but, but like, can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, yes, it can. And he has to rewire some expectations, but places give history and relationships and identity. Therefore, spaces, which are not concerned with history, relationships, or identity are non-places, one passes through them. They are not places which, to which to set roots. Rather, they are built for rootlessness. For example, airports and highways are examples of non-places. You don't go to an airport and go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have my kids here. <laughs> and I'm gonna, I'm gonna live here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put down some roots here. No, you don't do that at airport. You don't do that on a highway either. You pass through them. The problem is, we are turning most of our lives into non-places. We have made our work a non-place, meaning we bring ourselves to work as someone who is passing through our work without any rootedness whatsoever. We don't even think in that terms. Like, I'm gonna work here until like this thing peaks and I get a better job somewhere else. And if that moves me to New York or Nashville or wherever else, I don't really care. In a blink of an eye, I won't even consider, I won't even consider it an option. Of course I'm gonna move. Of course I'm gonna do that. Because work is a non-place and San Francisco's a non-place, and everything's a place that you're just passing through. But you have this restlessness, like, I wish I could find meaning in my life, and you have no idea that this is connected to your own rootlessness. To many, the city is a non-place, a place where you're passing through, a place where you don't care to learn its history or make any of your own history here. You're just passing through here. Relationships are non-places. We just pass or swipe or scroll through relationships. And church, church is a non-place for some of you. This is a good place to either catch a podcast 
or occasional live stream, or you might maybe show up in person once in a while. You're encouraged, you're inspired, maybe even equipped by what you experience here, but you are just passing through. You are using this place as you get from this non-place to the next non-place. And the thing is, not only are you changing the very nature of your job and the city and your relationships and this church by treating all these places like non-places, you're also doing something to yourself. You are becoming someone as you do this. Every decision you make to treat people, places, communities as non-places, places you don't put down roots, that you don't invest in, is making you into someone. You are becoming a very specific kind of person. David Jansen writes this, the 20th century will be remembered as an age of wondrous creativity when Americans voluntarily shattered their lives into distant and dissonant fragments. America's industries learned how to assemble atomic bombs, airplanes, iPads, and the genetic codes of life itself in the same era that American society disassembled the ancient overlap of family, food, faith, and the field of work. Americans reached for the stars as they withered their roots, inhabited space, but lost any sense of place. Old Testament scholar and theologian Walter Brueggemann said, the failure of an urban promise that promise concerned human persons who can lead detached, unrooted lives of endless choice and no commitment. It was glamorized around the virtues of mobility and autonomy that seemed so full of promise for freedom and self-actualization, but it has failed. It is now clear that a sense of place is a human hunger that urban promise has not met. It is rootlessness and not meaninglessness that characterizes the current crisis. Rootlessness and not meaninglessness. What you're really feeling is not meaninglessness, you're actually feeling rootlessness is what Brueggemann is saying. What these two and many other writers and poets and thinkers and philosophers have noticed is that the promise of unlimited freedom and mobility and the value we place on those things as something inherently good is really at the heart of so much of our restlessness and anxiety and even injustice. In other words, Every decision you make, you are becoming someone. Okay, now I give a version of this talk uh, every few years, and I've been doing it for many, many years now, several years, a lot of years. And I know, since I've been giving this talk, I know what happens right about now. Here's what happens. Let me just, right about now, a seed is planted in your head, like an inception seed. I'm just, I'm I'm inceptioning you right now. (laughs) And what happens is at this point in the sermon, you have this um, very American longing for the suburbs. <laughs> Wait, you might not think it's happening right now. Some of you will be inception right now to think, and it's not a full or complete thought right now, but it's in there and will germinate, and the thought will go something like this, and it might happen over the next week or the next year. It goes something like this. I need to get out of this city. I need a backyard and a front yard. I need a garage and better better insulation for my house. I need central air and central heat. I need a dishwasher and a spouse, and those two things are not related, by the way. (laughs) I need these things. This is what Dave was talking about. I need to be rooted there. I need the suburbs. And then this thought turns into this. 
I need to move to fill in the blank. Actually, I'll fill in the blank. Nashville or Austin, something like that will happen. (laughs) I need to move to Nashville. I need to move to Austin. Or if you're super hardcore, I need to move to Montana. Now, nothing against those places. Those places are amazing. Some of you are from there. Many of you will move there, and we will pray for you, and we will bless you. We will. We, we actually have that built into the DNA of our church, to pray for you and bless you. But allow me to try to give you a vision for a city. I'd say a real city like San Francisco, but a vision for a city. Let me try. Let me move this to like, okay, maybe that thing. By the way, if you want to read, well, I'll get to that in just a second. Um, I want to give you a vision for the city. According to our two texts they read, uh, Revelation 21 and Jeremiah 29, those two texts were read, and very purposefully, we see this. We see that a city is both the context of redemption and the crucible of transformation in a biblical story. The context of a city, uh, the city is both the context of redemption and the crucible of transformation in the biblical story. Cities... If you've read the Bible from, like from the beginning to the end, you realize and you know that cities didn't start out that great in Scripture. Cities were initially a physical manifestation of humanity's rebellion against God. Cities started in rebellion against God. The first city we see in the Scriptures was created out of rebellion against God. And the cities kind of like peaked at the like Babel, Tower of Babel, when a whole city was erected in order to make a name for themselves in the face of God. Cities get this reputation for being the hotspot of brokenness and human rebellion. But as scripture goes on, God, like God is prone to do, takes our rebellion and redeems it for his purposes. And in God's hand, the city becomes the place of redemption. So we get the last two chapters of the Bible. Heaven is described as a city. If you started the Bible in Genesis and you ended in Revelation, you would be like, wait, what just happened? The Bible started in a garden where people are naked and unashamed, and then cities were created out of rebellion, but God uses that and creates heaven to be a city at the end of the story. This is insane. This is crazy. Look at Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw a the holy city, City, throughout all of chapter 21 and 22, it describes a city. It says city over and over again, a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared. God prepares a city for our future. We are all headed for a city. That's God's future. That's our future. If you are in Christ, we are headed. Heaven is not a cloud with a harp. It's a city with a bunch of people. Which means we as followers of Jesus who believe in all things new should have a vision, a creative vision given to us by God of the future. We know where the future is going. It's going toward a city. Meaning we can and should be imagining the future breaking into the present in the context of our city because that is our future. We should have no lack of imagination of what God can do in a city because God himself provided the vision and the concrete hope of redemption for the city. The city and the new heavens and the new earth, God has showed us, shown us a vision for that. We also see in biblical witness that God continually led his people back to communion with himself within the context of a city. Eric Jacobson, in his really, really good book, Sidewalks in the Kingdom, says this, 
God had not given John a particular vision, had God not given John a particular vision of a city in his revelation, we may have been tempted to overlook the form of the city in the context of our redemption. And we may have missed something important in our cities. Because of this significant place in the history of our salvation, we cannot disregard the specific form of the city as a unique context with redemptive possibilities. John's vision gives us permission to examine our own cities for such redemptive possibilities, even if they exist only as a shadow of what is to come. What he is saying is that we can imagine, and we should be imagining, in the context of our broken city, the new city breaking into this city. Heaven come, kingdom come, your will be done in San Francisco as it is in heaven, the heavenly city. Now, there's a lot to say about this. I will say more at annual vision and prayer. But I don't think there's a better place to imagine the future of God's new world than in a city. To treat a city as a place, a place with history and tension and problems and potentials and the unique possibility of redemption. There's something about a city that the suburbs can never bring about. Actually, if... If you um, <clears throat> want a good case for why to live in a city, read uh, Life and Death of Great American Cities, or read A Geography of Nowhere, or read Sidewalks in the Kingdom, and every single one of these books will talk about how the, the, the worst thing America has done is created the suburbs, and I'll just stop there and let's move on. <laughs> Number two, <clears throat> not only is a city the context of redemption, but a city is also a crucible of our transformation. The biggest argument against cities from people who read the Bible, actually the biggest argument that people have for caring for the earth from people who read the Bible, is that little line in Revelation where it says that the old will pass away and God will make all things new. This is why historically some Christians do not care about the planet, they don't care about cities, they don't care about what they do to the planet because this planet is gonna go away anyways and God's gonna make a new thing. That's how the reasoning goes. Why be engaged in a city or any earthly project when in the end they will be destroyed and replaced by something better by God? Now, part of the answer is the last point, redemption. Cities are humanity's invention, so to speak, and God redeems them and they become the context of the future, meaning something we make, humans make, create, envision, and plan on this life makes it to the next life. Think about that. For, meditate on that for a second or longer than a second. Meditate on the fact that cities were humans' inventions and God redeems that and makes it the future, which means there's something that humans invent here that will make it into the future. The things that we create and make here will make it into the future. But also, not just that, a city can also work on us to help us become someone as well. And this is where Jeremiah 29 comes in. Jeremiah 29, the background here is before the, the, uh, this time, the people of God dwelled in a city called Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the religious center of where the, the activity of God was primary. The temple was in, was in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the king was in Jerusalem. And it was the, the city the children of Israel were waiting for. Like, Jerusalem, it's here. And this was supposed to be the hotspot of God's kingdom come, and it's supposed to spread all over the world. But in this city, they were disobedient, and they were greedy and oppressive, idolaters and unfaithful to the call of God to be the city of God. And in God's judgment against Israel, he allowed Babylon 
to come and destroy Jerusalem. And he led the Israel, Israelites away back to Babylon. So now they're in Babylon in what is called exile. That's why that word keeps coming up, exile, exile, exile. They're in exile. They don't, they don't belong in Babylon. They're meant for another city, a Jerusalem, just like we're meant for another city, the new Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Exile. So there is a sense of like we're exiled here on earth, waiting for God to make all things new. Very similar. But they're in Babylon, and they weren't supposed to be in Babylon, but that's where they are. And in Babylon, the Babylonians wanted them to assimilate completely to their cultural, political, and religious landscape so they would lose their distinct identity as the people of God. So they brought people in. They brought the best and the brightest. This is where you get the book of Daniel from. The best and the brightest, and they just try to assimilate them to make them just like Babylonians. They're just like, we'll give you Babylonian names. You have Babylonian customs. But God had a different plan. Now, however, there are prophets of Israel that were directing people to stay completely out of the city. So you're like, yes, we're in Babylon, but let's not live in Babylon. Let's live outside of Babylon so we preserve our unique identity and heritage. This is the first move to the suburbs moment of the Bible. Not joking, this is literally it. Don't be in the city, let's move to the outside. And God called those people false prophets. And Jeremiah is the true prophet, and Jeremiah had a third way. Don't, don't leave the city, but don't become like the city either. Here's what he said. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. Rent houses, we would say. (laughs) Settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Till the land. Make it fruitful. Don't mine all all the minerals out of it. Plant things for the future. Eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase the number there. Do not decrease. Also, this is crazy. because Remember, these were, these were their oppressors. They took them by force to live in Babylon. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So here's the question. The future of Israel wasn't Babylon. We know that. God said you would actually be there for 70 years, not forever. If this wasn't their forever home, this wasn't their permanent home, why does God want Israel to put down roots in Babylon? The answer can't be because God wanted Babylon to become the new Jerusalem. Not even because God wanted Babylon to become the surrogate Jerusalem. That's not what's happening here. Perhaps what is being accomplished was the shaping of a people more than the shaping of a city. Although the shaping of the city was a very important means to that end, meaning it was like, it's like when I ask my daughter Juniper to build a fort with me or to help me break down boxes on trash night. It's not just about the thing we're building or the thing that we're breaking down, but the thing that we're building between her and I. There's a means to an end. Yeah, we are building a fort. We are like taking all the trash out and clearing out all the boxes. We are doing that, but we're doing something more. We're building these things between us. We're tearing down walls between us. This is what's really going on. It's about relationship. In the same way, when God calls us, calls them to take root in Babylon, not only are they blessing the city, but by doing that, the context of what God's doing in them is happening as they do this in the city. So God gives them a vision for city, a vision for the city. And it looks something like this. Look at verse seven. It says, I have carried you away. The people of Israel thought they were carried away by King Nebuchadnezzar, but God says, I did it. And in a way, they were sent to Babylon. So here's the thing. You may think your job sent you here or that you're continuing your education here, 
But what if you started to think like this? God sent you to San Francisco. God sent you here. I was carried away by my job. I was carried away by tech. I was carried away by my education. What if you weren't carried away? What if God's like, I sent you there? I think you are sent here by God. Something that you should become aware of and start cultivating. Verse five and six, it says, build houses and settle down, marry and have sons and daughters. You can come into a city and to San Francisco for two reasons. You can come as a, a miner, a gold miner, or you come as a farmer. You can come here to take things, take everything that is the city has to offer, the jobs and the food, the coffee, the community of people just like you, money, success. You can come and take, 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 try to strike gold and extract all the gold, or you can come here to plant, water, and build, which means you're not here for what you can get, but what you can give. And ironically, this is exactly how you build an identity. What's interesting about this is it was from this point on in Babylon that the children of Israel would be called Jews. And that was not derogatory, which it meant they were a distinct people in Babylon. It was in exile in Babylon that the Jews developed the synagogue, a purpose built for space of worship around families that lived in walking distance from each other so they can observe the Jewish Sabbath laws. They learned how to live in community, like in a village, in a city. They would live by each other so they can rest together and worship together and raise their children together and share their common faith and maintain their unique identity in the context of a city together. They had to learn how to become themselves in a city. They were to make a life there. Verse seven, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. Pray for it. If it prospers, you will prosper. Can you imagine how the Jews took this news? Babylon killed their families, destroyed their temple and their city and dragged them all the way from their home into Babylon. And for all intents and purposes, Babylon was their enemy. But God says, don't live a passive life there. Don't root yourself in bitterness and anger. You will become your bitterness and anger. Actively work for Babylon's shalom. It's justice and peace. And pray for it. Tie yourself so much to the city, its civic good, its life, its welfare, so that if it has peace, you too will have peace, which means the opposite. If it doesn't have peace, you too won't have peace. So here's the question. Could there be a connection between the eternal city as the form of our redeemed existence and the temporal city as the crucible in which the character, in which character is formed for that eternal existence? Does that make sense? I'm going to say that again, just in case it doesn't. Could there be some kind of connection between the eternal city as the form of our redeemed existence and when God sends us to a temporal city, San Francisco, as the crucible which characters characters form so that you can rule and reign in that next city? Does that make sense? In other words, could, could choosing to put down roots in a place like San Francisco actually index your life to becoming the person God is desiring to make you for the future. So here's a couple invitations. Don't be a miner, be a farmer. Don't be a gold miner. Farmers have a totally different relationship with the land than miners do. Farmers have to live in and from the land so they think differently about what they do and how they do it how they live and how they root themselves there. Farmers go, if I take this from the land, my kids will not be able to live here. I actually have to pour into this land so I have a future for my children. Does that make sense? It's like they do this for the the future. They don't just do it for them. They do it for the future. They think long-term. They think seasonally. They think generationally. Next thing is consider staying longer. If you're like, I'm here for two years, just 
try 20. No, try, try five. <laughs> try four. Try, just consider, stay, so consider it. Consider staying longer. If you know that you are not staying longer here, believe you are. Invest like you are. Live here like you are staying longer. Wendell Berry, the very famous farmer poet, uh, says, to feel at home in a place, you have to have some prospect of staying there. If you don't feel at home here, try what Wendell Berry says. You have to have some prospect of staying there. Just act like you're gonna stay here. And when you have the option to leave, consider community, rootedness, what you're sowing into this place as a part of your decision to leave. Don't just like, I don't, do you consider this church you consider what you're doing, what you're planting here? No, I don't, I don't consider it. none of that stuff. doesn't even cross my mind. I just, the job is there. Just think about that, that we, the way we think. The job is there. If you have been here a while and have been able to develop good relationships and gain some wealth or good standing in the city, your temptation will be to protect what you have. So this is, we get in the city mentality where it's mine, 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 mine. And so we build higher walls. And I heard this quote when we were in London recently, when you have more than you need, build longer tables, not higher walls. So if you have more than you need, open up your home, show hospitality, build a longer table, don't build higher walls to keep other people from taking what you have. And I wanna end here, what if being rooted in place in a city like San Francisco is God's way of saying, come and let us build something together? And not only will you be building something, but I'll be building you into something in the process. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, I, I pray that, that this church would, um, first of all, the the prayer team was praying beforehand that no condemnation. So I pray no condemnation. There's no condemnation over uh, anyone who's like, this is their last Sunday. <laughs> They're gonna walk up to me after church. <laughs> oh yeah, this is my last Sunday and I'm not gonna talk to you now. Um, I pray no condemnation. I know people will leave here. That's, uh, I, some people need to leave here. And I think that's a good thing. And yet I pray that um, the thing I'm really praying and I'm after is that this spirit of rootedness take hold in our lives the thing that we think is just over there, just the next place, um, is such a lie. And if, um, if Jesus, uh, if you're in us, but we still need your body, to sh- the body of Christ, the church, to show who you are, in the same way, we can make our home in you, but we still need a home. We still need a place to, to live this out, to live our home in you out. And so I pray, God, that um, this sense of like being rooted in place and uh, the non-anxiousness that it provides over time would take root. And Lord, you would bring renewal to our city and prepare us for that new Jerusalem, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name.